Thank you. It's great to be here. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to turn to John chapter 12, beginning with verse 12. A lot of people have asked, how, how are we doing? We're, we're actually doing quite well. Uh, the kids are adjusting to life in Atlanta. And uh, although they were all very disappointed that I got to come back today, and they didn't. So, uh, but it's great to be here. Thanks for receiving me once again. Uh, let's turn to God's Word. This is John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. Listen now as I read. This is the Word of God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take this passage so familiar to most of us, and that you would take this season in the life of the church so familiar to most of us, and you would not allow it to just bounce off our hard hearts because we know it already, but you would allow the truth of the gospel, the passion of the Christ, to press in on our hearts and minds and the glorious truth of his resurrection, that it would be fabulously new to us. And that we would, through this, receive Jesus. That we would believe in him. We would repent and turn to him and delight in walking with him all our days. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there, we have a funny habit in the church of taking uh, biblical narratives that are rather complex, uh, often messy, difficult, unnerving, and in our kind of sweet evangelical way, we can kind of round off the rough edges, turn them into stories that are sentimental, picturesque, comfortable, and safe. Perhaps the best example of this is the way we treat Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark, I remind you, is a story of judgment and destruction where the vast majority of the human race is killed by the wrath of God. But we actually turn it into a cute children's story that's primarily about Noah coexisting with animals. Isn't that sweet? I think we do something similar with the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday. When you think about the triumphal entry, we think about uh, children. Swinging palm branches and singing sweet pictures of praise to Jesus. It's very nice, isn't it? I mean, what could be more safe and comfortable than children liking Jesus? 
One of the problems with that picture is when you read all the accounts of the triumphal entry, there's actually no mention of children. It's only in Matthew's gospel later when Jesus is in the temple that children are praising him. But, but no means, no, don't let that get in the way of a sweet and comfortable story. The other problem with that is that the triumphal entry is not really a story that's meant to make us feel comfortable. The triumphal entry is actually a story full of conflict and intrigue and confusion. There's plotting and scheming, which eventually leads to treachery and betrayal and murder. And yes, later on, as Jesus goes to the temple, there are children singing and worshiping him. But the presence of children worshiping Jesus while all of this is going on should not make us feel sweet and comfortable, but rather it should kind of raise the awkward tension. We know the basic event that's happening here. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. The people are waving palm branches and singing praises to his name. But I would suggest to you there's a lot more going on than that. What I'd like to do this morning is to try to peel back some of the layers of the triumphal entry. And in so doing, if God would grant us the privilege that we would be able to peel back the layers of our own hearts. This morning, I'd like to consider the triumphal entry from three angles. Number one, to consider the triumphal entry from Jesus' own understanding of what is going on. In John's account, we uh, read that Jesus found a donkey uh, in in 12.4, and he sat on it as it was written. But you could get the impression from John's account that somehow the triumphal entry starts to happen and Jesus kind of gets swept up in it. It starts with the people praising and then Jesus finds this donkey. But what we know from the other gospel accounts is that Jesus didn't just happen to find a donkey. But in fact, before he ever entered Jerusalem, he sent his disciples on ahead. He told them where they would find this donkey. They told him, he told them how to go about getting this donkey. You see, make no mistake, Jesus is the one who is sovereignly directing the events of the triumphal entry. And so when the praise begins to happen, he finds the donkey because it's right where he said it would be. The other thing we notice here is that in doing this, Jesus doesn't just happen to find a donkey, but he seeks out this donkey so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. The scriptures of Zechariah 9, which we have before us here in the text. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And in doing this, in getting this donkey beforehand and having it ready, make no mistake, what Jesus is doing is claiming the mantle of Zechariah 9 for himself. What does that scripture proclaim? It proclaims that the king is coming to Israel and that this king is righteous and he has, he possesses salvation in himself. He comes to defeat the foes of God's people, to put an end to warfare and bring peace to the nations. He comes to bring a universal rule that his rule will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. He comes to liberate all of Israel's prisoners. And then as the text in Zechariah flows on, there is this seamless transition between the king who comes to bring salvation because he has salvation and the Lord who, the Lord is the one who eventually saves his people. It's almost as if in Zechariah 9, the king is 
the Lord. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus has been claiming about himself all along. That he's not only the king, but he is the Lord himself. And so Jesus here in the triumphal entry is claiming all of that for himself. This is who I am. But also in the triumphal entry, in John's gospel, in the verses, if we could continue reading, make very clear, Jesus knows in coming to defeat the enemies of God's people, in coming to save them, he knows exactly who he's coming to fight. He knows exactly the foe that he's coming to take on. That foe, number one, is sin, sin itself. This has been clear in John's gospel since the very beginning. When John the Baptist first sees Jesus, he doesn't say, Hail the one who will come and defeat the Romans. No, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And Jesus here knows he's not only coming to defeat sin, he's coming to defeat Satan. Satan himself. For as he would say later in John chapter 12, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking about Satan. So here is Jesus claiming the mantle of the messianic king. He's the king who comes to deliver God's people. And he knows and he declares who he is coming to defeat. Sin and Satan. And then, as these verses make clear, Jesus is absolutely clear in his own mind how this victory will be accomplished. It's through his death. For after the triumphal entry, Jesus immediately begins to talk about his death. He says down in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Talking about himself. And then later in verse 32, he says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, so here's the picture. Jesus is the great messianic king who comes to bring salvation. Jesus knows this and he directs the events of the triumphal entry so that he might claim this mantle in a way that everybody recognizes it. He knows that he's coming to defeat sin and Satan and he knows that he's coming to defeat sin and Satan through the cross. That's what Jesus is declaring and he, make no mistake, he knows that this battle will end in victory. He says in John 12, 23, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says later in 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. The Father responds, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. In 12, 31, he says the ruler of this world will be cast out. In verse 12, 32, he says, I will draw all people to myself. And then in 12, 36, he says, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So the first thing we need to see in the triumphal entry is Jesus' own understanding of what is going on, what is going down. Jesus knows, I am the heavenly king. I'm claiming that mantle for myself. I'm bringing salvation. I'm going to defeat sin and Satan. I'm going to defeat sin and Satan through the cross, and I will most certainly be victorious. That's one layer. Jesus knows what's going on. He's directing the events to accomplish a certain purpose. 
The second layer then is what I would call the misplaced, the confused worship and adoration of the people. On one level, they seem to be saying all the right things. They declare using the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the, and the, the, the declaration of praise that they're bestowing on Jesus, it's fitting, it's right. In fact, in Luke's account of the gospel, when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, stop this, this is not right. You cannot let them praise you like this. He says, I tell you, if they were silent, even the rocks would cry out. So in one sense, the praise of Jesus, it's right, it's fitting, it's the right words that actually correspond to who he is. But what is also evident is that the very people who are offering those words, they have no idea who Jesus really is. They have no idea what Jesus is really up to. And when they learn it, they don't want it. We see that very clear. John's Gospel makes clear in 12 to 16 that the disciples themselves did not understand what was going on. And the crowds who were offering this praise, we know from the text that what they were looking for was a Christ. They were looking for a Savior. In fact, we know this because later when Jesus starts to talk about his death, their immediate response is, but doesn't the Christ remain forever? You see, their expectations are they want a Christ. They want a Savior. They think Jesus is that Savior, and so they're quick to give him praise. We know that they are praising him because they've seen the miraculous signs that he's done. They see here in the text. They saw that Lazarus was raised from the dead. They think this is very cool. And so they say, surely let's follow this guy. He raised somebody from the dead. Surely he's the guy we're looking for. But what's also clear and what's been clear in John's gospel is that they have expectations on Jesus that Jesus does not share. In John 6.15, we read that the crowds, many of the same crowds, surely, who were here on this day, they came and they wanted to make Jesus king by force. Jesus, of course, that wasn't his agenda, and so he slips away from their grasp. No, what what these folks were looking for primarily was a political deliverance. They wanted deliverance from Rome. They wanted political independence for the Jewish people. The Pharisees understood that this was the desire of the people. They said in uh, John eleven forty eight, 48, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Pharisees said, the, the implications of everyone believing in Jesus is this, the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. The people want a political Messiah. If they get a political Messiah, Rome's going to come in and crush us. But the crowds don't care because they think Jesus is the one. And so they praise him in the hopes that Jesus will be a tool that will accomplish their desires, their hopes, their dreams. But it's evident they don't want Jesus on Jesus' own terms. Because as Jesus begins to talk about his death, they push back. No, 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 no. That's not true about the Christ. Death? No. So that by the end of John's the 12th chapter, we read in 1237 that the same crowds who were praising Jesus, they do not believe, it's said of them in 1237, and in fact, they could not believe, 1239. 
So in the end, here is the scene. You have Jesus claiming this mantle for himself. You have the crowds praising him in a way that seems to be fitting because they're using the right language, biblical language, but ultimately they don't want him. They don't believe in him. They cannot believe in him. And then finally, you have the direct opposition of the religious leaders. They say in 1219, you see, you are gaining nothing. Now the whole world is going after him. What what are they gaining nothing from? Well, there's been a debate all through John's gospel among the religious leaders about what to do with Jesus. And some people say the answer's easy. You arrest him, you kill him. Be done with him. And then there are others who say, no, we have to scheme. We have to plot. We have to maneuver. We want that end, but we have to do it in a delicate way. And now these, the one folks are saying, look, all your scheming, all your plotting, all your waiting, you're gaining nothing. Kill him now. This has been going on all throughout the book of John, chapter 5, chapter 7, they're seeking to kill him. Chapter, Jesus knows this and continually says, why are you seeking to kill me? They take up stones to stone him on two different occasions. They plan to put him to death again and again. And so you have this, unlike the crowds who are kind of believing in Jesus in a sense, they want a Christ, they just want their own kind of Christ. Here you have the religious leaders who reject any claim that Jesus is the Christ. They are directly opposed to the scene of the triumphal entry. They want the praise of Jesus to immediately stop. So here is a review of the scene. Here is Jesus orchestrating all of these events so that he can be presented rightfully as the Savior, the King, the Christ promised in the Old Testament. You have people offering him praise and hosannas and shouts even though in their hearts they do not want who Jesus really is. And then you have the religious leaders who adamantly reject his claims to be the Christ and will do anything to put him to death. I think if we wanted to create a Palm Sunday scene that was actually reflective of the triumphal entry, we'd have children in the corner praising Jesus. And then we'd have the elders of the church standing in the other corner saying, Stop it! Stop it! It's terrible! That'd make you feel really comfortable, wouldn't you? And then you'd have all these people in the center praising him, praising him, praising him, and then turning and saying, no, we don't want him. That's the triumphal entry. It's not meant to make you feel comfortable and sweet. Well, look at the little kids singing praises to Jesus. It's meant to make you feel uncomfortable. It's meant to be unnerving because you think this is a messy situation. This is complicated. Who are the good guys here? Well, if you stay with the story, of course, it only gets more complicated, more difficult. Because after the triumphal entry, the the Pharisees cast off their reservations and they begin to crank up their attempts to get Jesus. And eventually they're able to manipulate the fickle crowds with all of their flimsy, political, messianic dreams. And they convince the crowds that Jesus is not the messianic savior that they want, not the political savior that they're looking for, but in fact, he's a political threat. He's endangering what they do have. And so in a matter of days, the same mob that was crying, Hosanna, 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 through the manipulation of the religious leaders, is then crying, Crucify! 
Crucify him. Crucify him. And eventually, they do crucify him. But here's the beauty of it. That as the Pharisees scheme and orchestrate the betrayal of Jesus, as they manipulate the crowds to cry for his death and to bring about the death of Jesus, they're not winning. Because all they're doing is playing right into Jesus' hand. They're fulfilling the preordained plan of God for the salvation of the world. The plan that Jesus has been making known all along. That he has come to die for sinners, for sin, to defeat Satan. Now what does this have to do with you and me? Well, as I said, as we peel back the layers of the story and we see what's really there, it is my hope and prayer this morning that we will be able to peel back the layers of our own hearts. Having been here for five years and gotten to know many of you, I think I can say that there are some of you here who openly reject Jesus as the Messiah. You've, you've signed a statement of faith. Your parents are Christians. But deep down, you don't want him. You ridicule him. You seek to mock him or neglect him out of existence. Oh, if you could only be free of the shackles of this place, the shackles of Jesus, the shackles of Christianity. You, you rightly recognize that Jesus claims to be the king. And if he is in fact the king, that is a threat to your autonomy. Deep down, you don't want a king to rule you. You want to rule your own life. But the triumphal entry reminds us you cannot defeat him. You cannot stop him. He is the rightful king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the creator of all things. He is the redeemer of his elect people. And your opposition to him, it may seem fruitful for a time. It may seem like you are actually accomplishing your agenda. But know this, you are simply playing into his hand. Our rejection of Jesus will not and cannot deny him of his place as victor and king over the cosmos. Your rebellion will only become a thread in the tapestry of his ultimate triumph. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so I plead with you, put down your sword of rebellion. Oppose him no more. Fall before him in repentance and faith. And from your heart say, Hosanna. He is in fact the true king who has come to save me from my sin and from the clutches of Satan. I think there are many of us here who, if we don't fall into that category of kind of open rebellion, no, we're quick to praise Jesus as Christ and King and God. 
But we do not really want a king who will save us from ourselves. What we really want is a genie in a bottle who will grant us our wishes. We want a God who will help us live the life we want, who will provide for us our best life now. We don't really want a king. And if this king calls us to hate our life and to give it up in order to be of service to him, we want no part of that. If this king, in his wisdom and his sovereignty and his care for us, takes away some of the things that are most precious to us, we are quick to recall our praise even to join forces with the rebellious and the mockers. We're quick to sing, Hosanna, Hosanna, but when we don't get our way from God, it's just as easy for us to cry, crucify. Do you know the number one reason why people leave the church? Because life is hard. Life is difficult. Bad things happen. And so we turn and we shake our fist at God and we say, I thought I wanted you, but apparently now I don't. But the triumphal entry reminds us in the subsequent verses, you cannot co-opt Jesus to your own religious agenda. You cannot use him to accomplish your purposes. Jesus is not a desperate B-list celebrity trying to get a spot on a reality TV show who's willing to take any role that you're willing to give him in your, li- in your life. As long as you would just offer him a measure of praise, he would take that. That may seem to work for a time, but eventually it will all come to light. Know this, the only thing that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will accept is for us to come to him and submit to him, to bow to him for who he truly is, to accept his person, his work, crucified and risen to save us from our sin and from the clutches of Satan. This is what he has done and this is what he calls us to. Brothers and sisters, May it not be. May it not be that we would be counted with such. May we not be a people who recognize that the foe, who who think that the foe is somewhere out there. The problem is them. The problem is the system. And all I need Jesus to do is come and fix that for me. So then I can be happy. Or maybe we not be a people who think, no, 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 no. I don't need Jesus at all because I can just fix it myself and I can build a system that will work and save me. May we be a people who realize the problem is here. The problem is my own sin. And I need a savior who can rescue me from me. I need a savior who will rescue me from the clutches of the devil because I'm, in, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a child of the devil. That's actually what John says, what Jesus says in John chapter 8. You're a child of the devil who's in bondage to your sin. You're in slavery. You need a radical savior who can save you. But oh, Jesus is such a savior. The humble king who comes ready to die for the very ones who have rejected him. 
Oh, that before that king, we would repent of our sin. Repent of our rebellion. Repent of all the ways that we praise him, but only on our terms. Oh, that we would confess all of that and come before him and say, King Jesus, crucified for my sin, save me. And change my heart so that I want to be your subject and I want to follow you, come what may. Because I realize that the life you're offering, even if it's a life that goes through suffering, and even if I must bear my own cross to follow you, oh, the life that you give, the life that you've set me free from, the life that you're offering me as a subject in your kingdom, it is truly blessed. It is true joy. And it is something that this world with all of its fickle scheming can never take away. As you have celebrated Palm Sunday, as you prepare to celebrate Good Friday, as you prepare to celebrate Easter, as you prepare to experience life as a Christian, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, my prayer for you is this, that you'll bow before the King, that you'll receive Him as your King, as your Savior, as your God, in all repentance and faith, and you would follow Him all your days. May it be so. May it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sweet, sentimental religion, though it may make us comfortable in the moment, it does nothing for us in the face of our sin, and it is of no hope in the face of death. What we need is a gospel that enters into the mess, the mess of rebellion and fickle religiosity and calls it what it is and calls us to repentance and offers us a Savior who will save us from all of it. Save us from our rebellion. Save us from our selfishness. Save us from our flimsy lack of commitment. Oh, we need a Savior who will subdue us and rule us for our good and your glory. Thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ we have such a Savior. May we repent and put our faith and our hope and our trust in him. And may we bow before him. And follow him all our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.